Today is uh, a special day when it comes to uh, sutta, sutta explorations, because uh, we finally begin uh, exploring the the main sutta, the main sutta that everything starts out from, meaning the sutta, the discourse rather, in this case, the discourse where Lord Buddha sets in motion the Dhamma. And it comes to us from the Sangita Nikaya, the connected or linked discourses, uh, Sutta 56.11, 56.11 from the Sangita Nikaya. And it comes from the collection of the great sections or the Mahavagga Sangyutta. And it is found in the Satcha Sangyutta, the bundles of discourses that are um, that address the truths dealing with the truths and it is under the heading of dhamma chakka pavattana vagga or the group on setting the wheel of dhamma in motion and the sutta itself is called in pali dhamma chakka pavattana sutta several syllables there but uh, it's a, it's it's a very important sutta that all the teachings go back to as their source officially, and um, I'm uh, I'm excited to share some thoughts on it with you here. Um, but first we must before we go into it the uh, this important sutta we must look at the series of events that took place and uh, that brought us to the scene where lord buddha is talking to the uh, the group of five uh, disciples so um, before he begins the discourse on the setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, um, while well, he became the self-awakened, uh, perfectly awakened Buddha. But what happened right after? So it wasn't like immediately after becoming an, uh, a Buddha, he began teaching. So there were several, in fact, several weeks that uh, passed uh, before him meeting with the group of five dis, uh, disciples. Uh, so I will be giving you several um, layers of information so you can uh, build the timeline proper um, and get uh, hopefully a better understanding of the context of, 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 of what was taking place. Um, I guess logistically, um, the Dhammachakka Pavattana Sutta itself is interestingly enough, uh, 
positioned inconspicuously in 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 a in a vast library of suttas within the Sangyutta Nikaya, even though it happens to be um, such a major teaching, obviously, one would expect it to be somehow perhaps in the long discourses or the Diga Nikaya or the middle length discourses or the Majjhima Nikaya, which are a lot more prevalent in people's minds. They get to come up a lot in Dhamma talks, Dhamma discourses simply because there's so many other very um, prominent suttas within these uh, uh, collections or nikayas. But uh, scholars have always wondered about that. And sometimes some people say, well, it came, there were other teachings that were given first. And then later on, when bhikkhus, arahants were asking Lord Buddha Bhante, what was the first teaching or what was this? So sometimes some scholars say, well, there were other snippets of teachings here and there, but this is where it got to be more formulated properly. And um, so the jury's uh, still debating on that uh, between scholars, but uh, you know, we always take what they say with a bucket of salt anyhow, the scholars that is. So here in this sutta, we see the laying of the groundwork for everything that follows uh, for the next 45 years of Lord Buddha's teaching, where the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path come to be clearly demonstrated, clearly explained. Um, and um, so there's uh, much to be follow, um, um, discussed about this sutta, uh, which I will try to do uh, my best um, in, in sharing them. However, because there's the, the enormity of the material to cover, um, I decided to divide this uh, sutta exploration series this this on this sutta to two weeks um, to in order for us to do it some justice even though the sutta is is is, is rather uh relatively short sutta but given its prominence and importance it it re, you know deserves uh the time we spent on it so let's begin with the first several weeks that followed Lord Buddha's awakening, Nibbana. Um, we see that during the first week, Gautama, our historic Lord Buddha, um, continues to sit in meditation under the same Bodhi tree, experiencing the bliss of liberation as a Buddha for a whole week. And uh, one can simply visualize hour after hour, sitting there day after day, not even taking a pause to go, well, to get some food or, you know, other things that we do when we sit too long. So the the second week, throughout the second week, 
um, this is where we um, get the description um, in the Vinaya Pitaka, in the Book of Discipline. It, it differs from the Udana, which are seen, uh, um, which comes to us from the Kuddaka Nikaya, which is one of the oldest, the Udana is one of the oldest collection of suttas we find, where we also see Bahya Sutta, for example, and uh, several other very important suttas. So in it, it describes dependent origination or the dependent arising um, exploration of it by Lord Buddha post his awakening to be taking place starting from the second day on. Um, and uh, so there is a difference in, in the timeline as to where we go to look as our sources, whether it's the Vinaya commentary or Vinaya itself or the Udanas. So if we go by the Udanas, we see how uh, Lord Buddha reflects on dependent origination or Paticca Samuppada in the direct order. Uh, if A happens, then B. If B takes place, then C, etc. And that we call, and that is what we call, uh, I think I mentioned it before, anuloma. Uh, it's like the fur of, of, of a dog or a cat or a bear or an animal where, where you, when you're petting the animal's hair, the fur, uh, if you go with the flow in the direct manner, along with the flow of the growth of the hair, the fur, it's a lot smoother. That's what we call uh, anuloma. So he was pondering, looking at the dependent origination links in a lot more um, uh, scrutinizing way. Uh, so because of this, there comes to be that. Because of that, there comes to be that uh, conditioned by, and we call that in Pali, Pachaya. So, other commentaries say how Lord Buddha during the second week uh, was standing with eyes open, gazing upon the Bodhi tree and in appreciation showing his respect to the Bodhi tree for having um, been his refuge during his struggles um, until he became um, um, perfectly awakened Buddha. And um, today, if you go, there is a small like a temple. It's called the Animisa Chetia. Chetia means a shrine. And which means unblinking eye, the shrine of unblinking eye. They say Lord Buddha stood there for a whole week showing his love and, and appreciation for Bodhi tree, um, which unfortunately uh, came to be destroyed over the centuries, uh, several times over. And in fact, I think it's the eighth or the ninth generation Basically, eight times it has been destroyed um, for various reasons and uh, invasions and jealous queens and all that. Um, but eventually, well, fortunately, um, one of the, uh, the, the graft was taken, I guess, this, 
uh, a sapling was taken from the original Bodhi tree, which was sent to Sri Lanka. And we still have uh, the offspring of that uh, Bodhi tree in the city called Anuradhapura and a little bit north of um, the capital of, of, of uh, Sri Lanka. And it's, it's, uh, it's beautiful um, to go. There's only a few um, um, trunks of it uh, left, but it is still flourishing with leaves. And it's a very uh, holy place if you ever get a chance to go. So we do have the direct descendant there um, of the first Bodhi tree that Lord Buddha paid respect to. So during week three, uh, we see Lord Buddha sitting under uh, the Bodhi tree again, reflecting on Patichasamapada again, this time in reverse order, uh, which we call Patiloma. Uh, when this is no longer there, then what does uh, uh, not come to be, etc. So now we're going backwards when you're you moving your hand over the fur of, uh, let's say your cat or your dog, it, there's a little bit of, you know, you can tell the difference, the tops of the hair touch you. So it's almost like a resistance. Um, according to the Dhammapada commentary, um, after his awakening, um, Lord Buddha, uh, as you can see, there's different versions of what took place. Um, so, I'm just presenting you the, 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 the dominant uh, accepted, um, at least by several, you know, groups um, of, uh, as to what took place. Uh, there is a place as you walk into Mahabodhi temple, where the place of awakening is, uh, Lord Buddha, uh, you will see these old, old ancient um, what looks like the remainders of columns or lotuses that were carved out of a marble. And those come to us from Emperor Ashoka, who came 300 years later after the Buddha's death, who found the place of his awakening and laid it out. Now, why the lotuses? These are huge, about a little bit over a foot, foot and a half, let's say about 16, 18 inches. And uh, so you have these still on the ground. Uh, so that is where the, the Dhammapada commentary says, where Lord Buddha did the Ratana Chankama. Uh, it's, it's called the bejeweled uh, walk. Uh, chanka means walking meditation. So, and that is where we also get the tradition of walking meditation. So you can imagine Lord Buddha walking in a straight line back and forth, right in front of Bodhi tree. So those lotuses became therefore the markers for where um, Lord Buddha stepped uh, in, each, in each of his Buddha steps, if you will. Um, so on the fourth week, uh, we um, have uh, the Udana again talking about the 
Patichasamupada being pondered by Lord Buddha, this time in uh, front and back version. So all three episodes of the Patichasamupada. So, and the third one being collectively seeing them at the same time. Uh, however, in the Vinaya, we see them placed all these different phases of uh, um, looking at the dependent origination steps in Anuloma, Patiloma, and both together on the same night. That's what we usually hear um, uh, when we look at the uh, awakening of Lord Buddha. So we look at that taking place in the same night. Um, so uh, during week five, after his awakening, we see him spending the week sitting under the goat herd's bunyan tree, which was not too far um, from where the Bodhi tree is. It's a big area, uh, but all walking distance, of course. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, week five um, is when Lord Buddha scans the entire cosmos with his mind because so far he had uh, been a student of, of different techniques but now during the last portion after leaving um, he had made the decision that neither of these other teachers guidance was the way to Nibbana so he took off on his own so, and then he becomes Lord Buddha, self-awakened, Samma Sambuddha. So at that point, during that five, uh, uh, the fifth week, during those days, he asks, he, he's looking and wondering, is there a teacher out there? Is there someone who is basically uh, wiser than him? for him to pay homage to? Is there a recluse more uh, esteemed than him uh, for whom he could pay respects to and, and bow? And uh, on, upon whose dependence he might call himself a, a student. But then he sees that there's no one there's no one higher than him, uh, especially um, as a Buddha. Uh, so he realizes that. And the next question then is, well, he's not going to pay homage to himself. His realization of the Dhamma itself, the Dhamma becomes the thing to pay homage to. So even Lord Buddha gave respect and homage to the Dhamma. And this is the time where obviously there was no Sangha. The, there were no community of bhikkhus. So at this point, Lord Buddha resolves that uh, paying of homage and respect should be attributed to the Dhamma itself uh, that he had discovered and awakened to. So on week six, uh, Lord Buddha spends time under the uh, Muchalinda tree. Muchalinda is also the name of a Naga king. And um, 
there was a, a powerful thunderstorm for a whole week. And the Naga king, uh, they're usually represented as serpents or dragons. And um, he comes out of the ground and he coils himself around Lord Buddha's body seven times and, uh, and then opens up its hood and uh, to protect Lord Buddha's body from all kinds of mosquitoes, gadflies, anything that's, you know, pesky pets and thing, uh, pests. Um, so, and then after the seven days are over, he, he uncoils and then takes the shape of a, of a child, of a, of a youth, and uh, who comes and pays respect in front of Lord Buddha. And Lord Buddha um, gives him a, a short discourse. We don't know what the discourse was. Uh, there was also an incident where a Brahmin came and he asked him about uh, what it means to be a Brahmin. And Lord Buddha gave him an explanation as to what is a Brahmin, what is not, who is not. And that too, we don't know other than just the gist of it, like I mentioned. On um, week seven, uh, we have um, Lord Buddha coming out of uh, his seven-week meditation, um, and um, which means 49 days of fasting. Uh, he hadn't eaten anything, and there were two traveling businessmen, so they were import-exporters, so they were passing by close, close to where the Lord Buddha was, and uh, prompted by a deva from a past life of theirs, uh, who comes to these two businessmen and says, you must go and pay respect to this samana, to this holy person sitting there in this direction. And um, they, they can't even move the cart because they're like, they're thinking they're seeing things. Anyhow, they decide to change their direction and they walk towards Lord Buddha and they see him and they offer him uh, rice cake and and uh, and uh, uh, some honey, chunks of honey. And uh, Lord Buddha is about to, uh, you know, accept, but then he realizes that he doesn't have a bowl, and uh, he reflects to himself that Tathagatas do not accept meals, uh, offerings without a bowl. And at that moment. The Chatu Maharajikas, the four great kings, offer each um, a, a, um, a bowl uh, made out of stone. And uh, that is where they put the food in. He picks one of them. So uh, later, these two merchants uh, took refuge um, after the meal in Lord Buddha. And uh, they took the refuge in Lord Buddha, and they took refuge in the Dhamma. There was no Sangha, as I mentioned. And these were the, two, the first two Upasakas, the first two lay disciples. And uh, they say that they were, uh, their point of origin was uh, modern day uh, Myanmar or Burma. So the Burmese people, Buddhists, um, consider them as the forefathers. They're the ones who brought the Dhamma to Burma, they say, uh, um, you know, right after India. 
So, uh, so they really pride themselves for that uh, in their history. So it was during the following week, the eighth week, where we see Lord Buddha scanning the universe and seeing how beings are simply not able to process, to appreciate, to understand the Dhamma. And as a result of which, he hesitated to teach. He hesitated to teach. Uh, even to the point where he said, you know what, I, I, I cannot teach this deep Dhamma. People are not ready. People are so lost in lust, greed, delusion, uh, the sense of competitiveness, uh, ignorance. They have no room. It's too difficult for them to ponder the layers of uh, Dhamma. And at this point, um, there was, uh, there is um, the Brahma uh, Sahampati um, deity who is at the highest echelon of, of um, perceptive um, beings. Um, Brahma Sampati sees in his mind the thought that Lord Buddha is reflecting on, meaning where uh, his sentiments that, you know, I cannot, I cannot teach this. So it's my, my, much better for me to just stay quiet. So he realizes the, the dire situation and immediately appears in front of Lord Buddha and arranges his robes uh, properly and he bows in front of Lord Buddha and says, please, please do declare the Dhamma. Oh, great conqueror, let set the doors open. Open the doors, open the gates for the Dhamma because there are many, many beings with little dust in their eyes amongst all those beings who have very thick layers of dust, meaning lost in ignorance. But there are those who will appreciate, who will understand the Dhamma and um, who will understand the subtle Dhamma. Please. And by the way, Brahma Sampati was also an Anagami and he had been uh, the student of the right previous Buddha, Lord Buddha, previous to Gautama the Buddha, meaning uh, Buddha Kassapa. Uh, we have six Buddhas listed in the Diganikaya, and uh, he happened to be a bhikkhu uh, who had attained the level of Anagamin or a non-returner. If you recall from previous uh, talks, I mentioned Anagamins um, are reborn in uh, the pure abodes so he happened to be uh, the highest among them. Um, and because of his connection to the Dhamma. So uh, he shows up and he's beseeching on behalf of all of us to um, have Lord Buddha reconsider him not wanting to teach. And, uh, yeah, and he mentioned, and this is in connection to what was taking place in India at that time as well, because Dhamma as such, uh, as a word, uh, not necessarily as truth, um, had many, many derivations uh, of it, meaning wrong views, 
wrong interpretations of it, even at the time of Lord Buddha. If you go to Jainism, if you go to the Vedas, if you go to other um, Samana traditions, everybody was talking about Dhamma here, Dhamma there, etc. But Brahma Sampati mentions to Lord Buddha um, how there are many wrong views in the world claiming to be the true Dhamma, and, but all of whom, all of whom uh, are based on wrong view and based on ignorance that all lead to sorrow, pain, uh, decay, death, and rebirth incessantly. He says, please, now is the time that the deathless gets to be revealed as tasted by Lord Buddha himself. And Lord Buddha, being the pragmatic uh, person, uh, teacher that he was, he scans the world, the cosmos, to see whether this is true or not, whether there are beings with little dust in their eyes, dust being uh, layers of ignorance. And he does indeed see that there are quite a number of beings in the world uh, with little dust, along with those lost in ignorance. And then Lord Buddha beautifully states uh, to uh, the Brahma God, uh, Sahampati, he says, open is the gate to the deathless. That means, then so be it, I will teach the Dhamma. And uh, Lord uh, Brahma Sahampati is so jubilant, so happy that he says, uh, uh, you know, I have helped the Dhamma to be proclaimed. I have helped. And, and he's so happy. And he pays homage and he circumambulates Lord Buddha and he leaves. Um, some commentators have mentioned how the gesture shown by Brahma Sahampati, who happened to be uh, the carrier of the previous Buddha's dispensation, having been a bhikkhu and an anagami of that dispensation of Lord Buddha Kassapa, the predecessor to Lord Gautama Buddha, uh, by him coming and being an intermediary, a, a, some type of a, a bridge, a liaison, he connected both Buddha's uh, dispensations together. So he linked them up. And uh, that's why this is uh, an important event. And uh, some people have said, well, how, how can he be a Buddha and still hesitate? Isn't that why he showed up on this planet as a bodhisattva wanting to um, help beings to you know, come out of suffering? Well, Every single Buddha has gone through that stage, they say, of, of hesitating to teach. And there's always been apparently a Brahma Sahampati type of a presence coming in and to beseech, representing all of us on behalf of all of us to ask Lord Buddha to teach. And there is also a custom where Lord Buddha, whenever he taught, uh, it would have to be instigated, asked, asked for by the listeners. To this day, some teachers do not start giving a Dhamma talk until there is a proper invitation 
to give a Dhamma talk. Um, so, um, yeah, so it was during the same week also, by the way, that after Lord Buddha decides to teach that Mara shows up, the great deceiver. And, uh, and he comes in and he says, uh, basically, uh, well, you got what you wanted. So now uh, you're a Buddha. Let's cut it short. Why don't you just go into Parinibbana? Why don't you just, you know, uh, die, basically, end this life? Because this life is never going to give you that satisfaction. Instead of going about and teaching others, um, and so there is an interesting dialogue that, uh, you know, in, in verses between Mara and Lord Buddha. And th that is in the Mara Sangyutta from the Sangyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses dedicated to the discourses related with rather uh, Mara. And Mara says uh, at the end of it, the verses, Mara says, just like a group of people who pull out a crab from the lake or water and a river and they chop off its limbs, um, the crab no longer has the ability to go back into the water. That's exactly how I feel. This is Mara. Because he threw whatever he had at Lord Buddha to no success. And then he sits there under some tree and is like lamenting over his situation because many, many, many people are going to end up seeing the Dhamma and attaining the same level of awakening as Lord Buddha, Nibbana. And he's not going to be able to do anything about it to deceive them from cutting loose from samsara. At that point, they, the, the suttas say how three of his daughters showed up um, uh, tanha, arati, and raga, who, that are craving uh, delight and passion or lust, and they go and they see their father, and uh, and then just like okay, um, uh, we say father and daughter, obviously symbolically, but uh, they go to seduce Lord Buddha in different ways, and Lord Buddha just sitting there. Um, so they do in different phases and different embodiments, uh, lustful uh, representations. And he just sits there, completely ignoring them. And then uh, he tells them uh, that there's no way that, you know, um, a samana who has reached that level could ever be deceived by their tricks. Uh, so... Now, Lord Buddha starts to look around and says, well, who can I teach now? Who's, who would be the perfect people ready to take the subtle Dhamma? And obviously, he first thinks about his first teacher, uh, Alara Kalama. And right at that moment, uh, as he thinks of him, because he realizes that his teacher was, uh, had a pure heart, and uh, he would be a perfect candidate to take um, the Dhamma. And at that moment, the devas uh, um, you know, tell him that seven days earlier, his previous teacher, Alara Kalama, had died and now was born and reborn in the, uh, in the uh, realm of nothingness, um, 
which is a very subtle, subtle state of uh, a realm um, where the person or the being is who was reborn there is non-percipient. So it's a realm of nothingness. So Lord Buddha couldn't even communicate to him telepathically to teach him the Dhamma. Um, so um, and that realm um, is about 60,000 Mahakalpas in duration. And 60,000, I think, yeah. Uh, Mahakalpa is uh, like the four stages of Kalpas. Think of it uh, like the Big Bang prior to the Big Bang, the Big Bang after the Big Bang expansion, and then it reaches that climax. It, there is that pause, that's also a kalpa, and then the contraction, which is also a kalpa. So you put all those four stages, you get a maha kalpa, vast, vast, uh, almost incalculable time period. So 60,000 of those, <laughs> that's how long uh, Alara Kalama was going to stay there. So a wasted opportunity? I think so. And then uh, he says, okay, then how about Uddhakarama Putta, the second uh, teacher? And uh, immediately he realizes because the devas tell him also uh, that he, that teacher had also died the night prior. And he had been reborn in the um, neither perception nor non-perception realm, which is the highest. Uh, because of their jhanic uh, training, by the way, uh, if that becomes the person's refuge, their go-to state of so-called liberation as they see it, then that person will look to that state as, as they're exiting this, this, this realm, this body. And as a result, they had been reborn in these realms. And he obviously, uh, this teacher also was inaccessible because he was also the uh, non-percipient. And we have four, uh, uh, I think it was four, could be wrong, uh, realms, in, formless realms over there. So there goes that. So they're totally inaccessible. So who's he going to teach? At that point, he thinks about, uh, by the way, the, the last teachers, uh, if, you're, if a person is reborn in that highest realm of neither perception nor non-perception, that is 84,000 Mahakalpas. As if it makes a difference for us because it's just vast, uh, you know, incomprehensible uh, time periods that we're talking about. Uh, so, and uh, Lord Buddha thinks about who should he think next uh, as, as, as students for him to teach. He immediately um, sees the five disciples, the five who had left him because they thought that by him refusing to do the ascetic practices, the torturing of the body, etc. As luxurious treatment, meaning he had gone back to living um, a life of passion and uh, and all that as as a prince as he was, so they took it to that extreme, and they left him. Even though he tried to tell them that no, this is you know if the body is that broken, if you're that close to death, 
then Nibbana cannot happen. There cannot be any awakening taking place. But they refused to see that. So they walked away from him and uh, he ended up cleaning himself up and eating and, and regaining some of his strength back to be able to sit. So at that time, the five disciples were at Isipatana, um, at, uh, um, in Sarnath, uh, which is uh, close to Varanasi. That's the biggest city. Varanasi, it's also called uh, Benares. Um, today it's called Varanasi, I believe. And it was at the Deer Park. And there is today a big stupa there built at that location. So uh, despite the fact that it was such a long way from where he was, he was in Gaia, Bodh Gaya, and that's, that's pretty far, um, like hundreds of miles, I think. Um, and he could have easily teleported himself, but he didn't. And um, some people have wondered about that, like why would Lord Buddha walk um, all the way there. And uh, well, Upaka. Upaka, that's the name of a person. He was an uh, Ajivaka. Remember the Jains, uh, naked ascetics? He was a naked ascetic. And some uh, scholars argue that it was because of this person whom Lord Buddha ended up meeting as he was walking all the distance back to, um, to Isipatana to meet the students. And here is where we find the first time Lord Buddha declaring his awakening to a, uh, to a human being. And this is a very uh, monumentous moment because uh, Upaka was, was watching, was observing his, his Lord Buddha's walk. He was looking and he was mesmerized by his footprints first and then looked and gazed and he followed him for some distance. And then he stops him and asks him, you're no ordinary being, who is your teacher? And he says, I don't have any teacher. He says, are you a God? Are you a human? He says, I'm neither. Uh, well, if you're not no one's student and no one is your teacher, who are you? He says, I am the one who has gone beyond. I am Lord Buddha. Um, so this is a very crucial uh, time period in the sasana. Um, so he says, I am the Jina. Jina is a conqueror and the awakened one. Um, so the only arahant in the world. Well, at a time period when the giant leader Mahavira was claiming that he was an Arahant or a Jina, um, and others, there were six, seven teachers like that, especially in Rajika, that area of India. So had, I mean, we been Upaka, let's say, lack of faith and all that, and you're already following some other teacher and you see this person claiming to be blatantly the Buddha, publicly, publicly announcing it, we can see that sometimes it doesn't land so well. So 
Upaka just shakes his head. Uh, you know, in India, people shake their head like this. It's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And he has that kind of a response. And maybe he rolls his eyes, uh, eyes as well. And he just turns and goes the other direction. Avoids Lord Buddha. It's like, okay, this, this person is out there. Um, because he's too self-confident, perhaps, to him. Uh, that's, you know how he might, be, might have been perceived. And he just says, sure, friend, and he walks away. Uh, but we can look at it as, as what a wasted opportunity. <laughs> Imagine, you are the first student to come across Lord Buddha. This is it. You know, and, and, and now we see that Lord Buddha walked 142 miles to see this guy. To meet him on the way because he could have easily shown up right there in the middle of Isipatana in Deer Park but he didn't and in the Diganikaya commentary we see that in fact Lord Buddha was giving an opportunity to Upaka um, and uh, who walks away and Lord Buddha goes to Saranath to meet the five disciples now, just uh, briefly about Upaka. Upaka was, was, uh, was a Jain and he was a naked ascetic. And on the way back to the village, he meets this uh, woman and he falls in love. And soon enough, he, uh, who, he, he leaves the holy path. He leaves being a recluse. And he tries to persuade the father who was a huntsman, hunter. And uh, basically he marries her eventually. And, um, but his mind is still thinking, is he's always dwelling on that encounter with Lord Buddha. And he says, Gina, Gina, that Gina, you know, I have to, I have to go. And his wife to the point starts making fun of him and uh, Lord Buddha eventually sees his mind, uh, Upaka's mind, and while he is already in Savati, and he tells his students, if somebody comes and asks for the uh, Jina, bring him to me. And Upaka leaves his family, he, he becomes a, a recluse again, and he comes straight away to Savati looking for Lord Buddha, and they bring it, uh, him to Lord Buddha and he is ordained and soon enough he becomes an anagami and dies and on landing in the pure abodes he becomes an arahant. Uh, that person who rolled his eyes and, and just shook his head and walked away. So we see how important these encounters with the Dhamma can be. By the way, Chapa, uh, his wife also leaves her life and comes and becomes ordained as a bhikkhuni and she becomes an arahant while living. So interesting backstory I wanted to share with you so that we just don't look at the Dhamma Chakka Pavattana as uh, in a vacuous environment. So in the Mahavagga we see, uh, which is uh, part of the Vinaya Pitaka, uh, we see how the five disciples, meanwhile, as they see Lord Buddha approaching, they quickly 
talk amongst themselves and they say, well, when Siddhartha, they call him Siddhartha, you know, when he comes, we're not going to show him respect. We're not going to set his seat properly. We're not going to get water for his washing of his feet. Uh, we're not going to go in and help him with his bowl and, and, and his, his robe. Now, they had treated him like that because they had been his students. However, as he gets closer to them, that allegiance that, that you know, telling themselves we're gonna do this or not do this, that falls apart because immediately each of them rushes to <laughs> Lord Buddha. One carries the bowl, one takes away his outer robe and uh, the other one sets water for him uh, to wash his feet and puts a towel next to him. The other one you know, sets his sitting place in order and they sit. But you can imagine what might have been going on in their mind. So first, uh, Lord Buddha is speaking to them, uh, saying to them that the, the deathless has been attained. The gates of the deathless are open and he has realized it and he has come to teach them the Dhamma. But they use the term Abuso, which is uh, in Pali, it means friend, which you don't say that. Uh, you say that to someone who's your equal, uh, but you don't say that to the teacher or in this case, Lord Buddha. So they repeat this three times and Lord Buddha in the first time says, please don't use the word Abuso. <laughs> and uh, because I am no longer that person. And they pretty much ask him, well, when you were with us doing the exercises and uh, the things that we were doing together, the practices, you were not gaining any of those lofty states. What makes us think that you have reached them using those lofty states because we're still there and we haven't tasted them. So they're using their own logic to understand. So this goes on three times and they three times they're refuting him, basically accepting him. So there's passive aggressive behavior there, even though they helped him with the bowl and the robe and the water, but you can tell that they are still resentful, but they're still fighting with this fact that there's this person is different. He looks different, feels different, he's talking different. So there's this schism, this dichotomy taking place within their mind until Lord Buddha says, have you ever, bhikkhus, have you ever seen me talk with this much certainty ever? Have I ever declared to you that I have attained in the past what I claim to have attained now? Have I ever expressed to you that? And they stop and they say, uh, no, Bhante. Immediately, the Avusu turns to Bhante. So that is where the transition happened. They do a 180-degree turn in their approach, and they, again, accept him as their teacher. And now they're ready to listen. So this is what's taking place. And uh, so that is 
uh, bit of the background. I know I've taken a good amount of time, but it's well-deserved, I think, for this sutta. And uh, let's begin. This is what I personally heard. Once, the Blessed One was living at Varanasi's Deer Park in Isipatana. It was then that the Blessed One, by addressing the group of five bhikkhus in this manner, said the following. Bhikkhus, for the one who has gone forth from home life into homelessness, these two extremes should be avoided and not followed. What are these two? The first is gratifying oneself through the pursuit of maximizing sensual pleasures, which is inferior, vulgar, the way of common ordinary people, ineffective, useless, and cheap. And the second is mortifying oneself through extreme asceticism, which is unnecessarily painful, ineffective, worthless, ignoble, crude, and useless. This is the way that Lord Buddha is addressing their accusations, which led them to walk away uh, from him. Because they thought that he was now, when he was Siddhartha still, that he was now choosing a hedonistic lifestyle again, turning his back on the spiritual path, the holy path. This is how there was, it was uh, either, you know, it was, it was all or nothing basically. And, and their thinking, their approach. And uh, they were thinking that he was becoming again, a slave to his senses. This is important because in India at that time, especially even today, not just in India, of course, but uh, around the world, we see that the spiritual path, in order for it to be seen as legitimate, oftentimes has, you know, they, they, you know maybe it's not even spoken out loud, this tendency in people's uh, view, point of view of what it means to live the spiritual life, that the body must also be tortured. That somehow you need to deprive yourself of, you know, for example, clothing, right? The ajivakas, uh, or, or torturing yourself in some type of abnormal, um, uh, you know, uh, really, really um, unnecessarily painful uh, lifestyle. Um, simply to show that you have turned your back. And Lord Buddha saying, no, that's an extreme as well. My life previously was an extreme hedonistic lifestyle, um, but this one is also an extreme. It does not have to be so. Here we see the prelude, the beginning of what Lord Buddha is talking about and the path itself, which is Majjhima Pada, which is the middle path. But he first has to get it through their heads that I walking myself, walking away from that lifestyle that we had as a recluse did not mean that I was going back to hedonism. So in a sense, Lord Buddha is refuting 
with that approach of what many people have, have called uh, the spiritual life. Many of his students who later converted and came, uh, who became their students, uh, his students, uh, had been living that lifestyle because they saw the middle path being taught by Lord Buddha and lived by him, which is a constructive way of living this human life that can be transformed into the holy life without uh, negating uh, basic uh, needs for the body, uh, without be becoming life negating in a sense. So he says, by steering clear from either of these two extremes, the Tathagata has awakened by understanding the middle path, which gives rise to knowledge and vision. Jnana Leading one to peaceful contentment, to penetrative insight, to perfect awakening, to Nibbana. Here on one hand, we are seeing um, the wrong view of a nihilist or annihilationist uh, or a person who's very uh, well body oriented uh, you might even call it modern day uh, like atheists for example uh, or even you know as i mentioned so many times um, like some secular buddhists who put themselves in that camp of thinking very so-called matter of fact, like once this life ends, that's it. Okay, what does that give permission to do for the person? Now the person's thoughts, views, consciousness, uh, and you name it, are all squeezed into this uh, body and all its narratives that are going on in the mind which inevitably leads the world, uh, the world to be in the state that we're in right now. Many people don't care and don't have much appreciation as to what is coming next after they've lived out their lives. Meaning how uh, much wholesome actions was, were there or was not, how much unwholesome behavior was there in the life which pretty much explains today's hedonistic lifestyle. Hedonistic lifestyle or the extreme of uh, you know, following our sense pleasures is not necessarily uh, only for the lifestyle that Siddhartha Gautama lived in his three palaces, surrounded by all kinds of things, uh, sense pleasures that could give. It could be also us being completely enmeshed in the world of, I want this, I want this. I need to protect myself. I need to just think about my needs. I need to just take care of this body and whoever's close to me and extract as much joy out of this life for my sake and for my loved one's sake. And that's it. Before I die, make the most of this body before I die. And that's the end for me. That's how most criminals, most politicians, most world leaders and, and whatnot, whoever's running our, uh, this planet right now are thinking because there is no sila. So basically, whatever you can get your hands on and not get caught, good for you. That's the annihilationist, the nihilist view because they don't see anything beyond. 
okay, that's one view, which is one of the wrong views. Uh, now, the second one is uh, the counterpart of this. First one is, is the eternalist view, which looks at the body as something that needs to be tortured. Uh, you know, this is where we were talking about the separation between spiritual life, holy life, and this body. And they look down upon this body. Even getting a, a good cup of coffee or tea is looked down upon as being too, <laughs> you know, uh, lost in sense pleasures and, and even hedonistic, you know, or getting a, a comfortable bed, not extravagant, luxurious or something. Just nice, you know, comfortable bed with comforters, something like that would be seen as over the top, uh, luxurious, hedonistic. So that is also because they want to torture the body, crushing it to the point where they say, by me exposing myself to this much torture now, I will be getting eternal life afterwards. So that is the other extreme. That's why we call it the eternalist view. The one who is not living here in this life for the sake of the future, some uh, heavenly birth or whatever, uh, and sacrificing this life and what they can do with it while living the middle uh, and being on the middle path. Uh, Buddhism, at least in its earliest form, is then... Um, in between these two extremes and uh, because it absolutely and, and explicitly rejects these two extremes and of practices um, and the Lord would advise us to give them up completely um, so he's trying to get us out of the ignorance by showing us that it is not a matter of sensual appeasement or glorifying the body or gratifying our worldly existence, uh, nor by uh, just rejecting uh, the body um, and finding or giving ourselves the chance to one day find enjoyment in another realm. As you see, you know, there's a lot of correlation with other religious practices, as in the case of Christianity and Catholicism. Uh, we see that, and not just there, you see it elsewhere as well, where some shamanic cultures, they torture the body, uh, piercing it, this and that. So is, this is an ancient uh, dichotomy, I guess, primal tendency that human beings have, that if you want to be living a spiritual life, you need to go to that extreme to reject the body. So here we're looking at the Majjhimapada in a different way as completely separate from these two. And uh, unfortunately, some people uh, who have a leaning towards Buddhism, they look at this middle path by interpreting it as, let's say, instead of drinking uh, six packs of uh, beer or four or five glasses of wine, let me cut down and, and go by just two glasses. That's middle. I've had people who said that. And I said, no, that's, that's not the middle path that Lord Buddha is talking about. Understanding the clear demarcation line of, okay, I cannot break these precepts. 
just five, just five as a layperson. And I can live my life while being, you know, as a layperson doing all these other things, but I can protect myself by these precepts. So there has to be a definitive no to certain behaviors. And how much we put in is how much we gain from our practice, from our sila also. Um, just wanted to mention that as well. And what because is that middle path that was awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to knowledge and vision, leading one to peaceful contentment, to penetrative insight, to perfect awakening, to Nibbana. It is this noble eightfold path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right collectedness of mind. This, bhikkhus, is that middle path that was awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to knowledge and vision, leading one to peaceful contentment, to penetrative insight, to perfect awakening, to Nibbana. So in other words, while using the Majjhimapada or Patipada uh, or the middle path, when, when we use that term, we're also referring to the Noble Eightfold Path. So if you look at the Noble Eightfold Path, it is another synonym for the middle path, right view. Some people call it uh, uh, appropriate uh, let's say for right action, they would say appropriate behavior, appropriate behavior to the scene, the context, etc. I used to also uh, call it, let's say, uh, harmonious. I would use that uh, uh, from Bhante Punnaji, also uh, other teachers, but uh, that could also work. Uh, so I just use this translation, uh, which I did for the sutta, as as right. A right view because it's it's more prevalent and people can understand it and relate back to what it is that we're referring to. So um, the Majjhima Patipada is the Noble Eightfold Path itself. And uh, here then Lord Buddha is establishing the five disciples in what it means to be on the holy path. So he had to remove them from that wrong view of the extremes where they were holding on to one extreme as pushing the other extreme away. Let's say eating, eating normal amount of food once per day was seen as vulgar for them um, or not showering uh, or not drinking water for days, um, etc. torturing the body they were seeing that and appealed to that and pushed everything else away. So he pulled them away from those two extremes and is putting them into the hands, into the lap of middle path. And he's explaining to them what it means to have the middle path. What is the middle path? And he starts with the right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right collectedness of mind because where what they were practicing was wrong collectedness or wrong concentration i like to call it and the term in pali of course is samadhi samma samadhi 
And I've mentioned it many times where I abstain from using the word concentration uh, for Samadhi because it's much bigger uh, and wider, a multi-nuanced term and collectedness or stability of mind fits the bill much better to describe that state. So this way, therefore, Lord Buddha is establishing them, the, the, bhikkhu, the five disciples in the Brahmacharya, the holy path proper. Um, because they cannot understand the Four Noble Truths otherwise. Because they are, were still keeping themselves aloof and as, as almost like the holier than thou, the self-righteous. That's why they were referring to Lord Buddha as Avuso until the moment where they saw, okay, something's got to go. Our old narratives have to be dropped right now if we are to hear the message that is being presented to us. Furthermore, and this is where it gets interesting, Lord Buddha jumps into discussing the Four Noble Truths. Furthermore, because understand this now to be the noble truth of suffering. That is, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering. To be brought together with what is painful and displeasing is suffering, whereas separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants and yearns for is suffering. In short, the five grasping aggregates are all suffering. Grasping aggregates. In, in case you, some of you might have forgotten, the aggregates are nama rupa or form, uh, physicality, materiality, mentality and, and, and uh, materiality. Uh, second is Vedana, feelings or sensations, pleasant, painful, or neutral. Uh, then we get Sanya, which are perceptions, uh, roughly translated, or notions, uh, concepts, thoughts, memories, uh, interpretations, etc., associations of thought, etc. Uh, the fourth is Sankaras. Sankaras are usually translated as uh, formations, uh, fabrications, or preparations. I like to call them as uh, mental conjurings or generative causes. And then fifth is consciousness or vijnana or sense awareness. We grasp onto these five. And as we do, there's suffering. That's why they're called uh, the five grasping aggregates. And uh, as we're getting into the Four Noble Truths, as you see, uh, we also see the two aspects of life in them. Just like if you recall the, the four right efforts, the four aspects of right effort, where the first two deal with, respond to uh, the unwholesome, the akusala kamma, while the other two are cultivating the groundwork for the wholesome. Similarly, if we look at the Four Noble Truths in that sense, we see how the first Noble Truth is there is suffering in life. 
we see that being declared. So if you look at suffering as the unwholesome here, that fits it. Uh, if, by the way, my sound doesn't come out clear, there's torrential rain around me <laughs> outside, <laughs> not inside. So I apologize for that. So in the second aspect of it, of course, which is the second noble truth, deals with the cause or the origin of that suffering. So that would be one aspect of life. But what's the second aspect? The second aspect, obviously, is what we do in response to these. The fact that there is suffering, the fact that there is a cause for it. So the third aspect of it would be, uh, or the third uh, branch of it uh, would be um, to give us uh, the clarity in understanding that there is a release from that suffering, a liberation, what we call cessation or ending of that suffering. Because I think most of us have experienced, if not all of us, that when we have been experiencing some excruciating pain or headache or suffering or in the hospital or sick, there comes a time where we feel like this is it. There's nothing else, especially if you've had a toothache. Nothing else exists other than the suffering. So in that mindset, it's very difficult for the person to even bring in the notion or even hint at the possibility that there might be an ending of this suffering. And that's why when we are at the, you know, in, the, in the hospital or sick, when we have somebody close to us come, or even a nurse or someone who smiles at us or holds our hand while in, we're in the middle of that much pain, that smile itself can, uh, can, can whisper to us that, you know, this is temporary. There is a release from that suffering. And we become hopeful. We get a breath of fresh air in that smile, especially when people give us actual words, sentences, encouraging statements that, you know, tomorrow when you come out of the hospital, tomorrow when you get back on your feet, etc. That is also seen as, ah, because it's removing you from the deception, delusion that suffering is the only thing. That's why the Dhamma is not saying life is suffering. It's saying there is suffering in life. There will be suffering in life, but still it's not saying life is suffering because that has pessimistic qualities to it. They're downers. They bring the person down, the energy, your uh, morale, etc. So and then the other uh, port, portion of the second aspect is uh, the application of the Eightfold Path. So now I have to catch myself every time I'm thinking that suffering is the only option for me. Being, pes being pessimistic is the only option. For no, I have to pull myself back. So I am taking a more of a directive role. Whether I want to further the sense of pain discontent in me versus I want to change that even though the body is suffering. 
how can I protect it, my mind, from my own negative thoughts? Because the body is going to be decaying. I mean, it is right now as you're sitting there, the bo your body, my body is decaying. It's eroding as we speak. Even though we try our best to protect it, to nourish it, to cater to its need, to exercise it, but we have zero control over the dukkha that is uh, inevitably uh, going to be faced by the body, as well as death, of course, and not just ours, but our loved ones. So that is a fact. And that is obviously part of Dukkha. But is there something that I can do to not fake it, not sugarcoat anything, but to understand? That's why this is called an understanding-based path, wisdom path. Because there's one, you know, it's one thing to see the body that is suffering and another to add more suffering to it by psychologically, emotionally loading ourselves up with further and further and further negative scenarios, adding more suffering, which is exactly what's happening in the world today. People are afraid of this coronavirus to death, forgetting that there's other deaths that have been happening. All of a sudden, they didn't disappear. You know, people didn't stop dying from heart attacks or strokes or naturally. Now, whenever we hear about death, immediately we're thinking, oh, COVID or Corona or this. What happened to cancer, for example? I thought that was deadly. So what we're doing is we're adding more and more psychological and emotional trauma over what is being experienced by the body. You know, my grandmothers died from cold, the flu. That's why before they died, they would always uh, uh, tell me to pray. You know, I was a child to pray so that God doesn't take them when the flu season came. That's how uh, prevalent and powerful it is. The, 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 the notion and the belief that flu can take you away. And it is powerful. But sometimes we're forgetting that this is also a different version of that, even though people are being given more and more information that makes us forget about how deadly leukemia, not leukemia, but ovarian cancer is, for example, or breast cancer, or other issues, brain tumors. Because the brain, uh, us, the mind is now so focused on anticipating more dread adding more suffering onto the physical suffering that's going on. This is where, this is one way, of course, you might agree or disagree, but the fact is that people are suffering and we're adding more suffering onto ourselves. And Lord Buddha is saying, no, it doesn't have to be that way. We need to practice right view, right understanding, right effort has to be applied right livelihood has to be, right action needs to be there. So 
I'm spending time here on, on the, the fact of suffering because it's so we all we all know what it is in different levels. Uh, what is dissatisfactory? What is what what causes us to feel not good, basically? Uh, to be suffering, one has to be ill. One has to be unhealthy at the very least. Uh, but we know we need to also look at what it means to be suffering mentally, emotionally. It's not just physical suffering, especially when we come to the Dhamma, the way we understand the Dhamma. We need to be looking at our emotional and psychological pain, which is prevalent in the world today. That is more of what is happening. People are afraid. If you ever traveled or if you ever go outside this and that and you, uh, people are segregating themselves from other people. We're back to the 30s, 1930s. People are terrified, educated people who know very well, have studied the, you know, World War II history, what brought it about, what was happening, what happened after. We're never going to go back there, but we're seeing that take place. Why? Because people are afraid, suffering. The mind is unhealthy. We are basically sick. We are unhealthy because Buddha, Lord Buddha would say, because we are mentally underdeveloped. Underdeveloped. In order for us to be developed, we need to have a clear understanding of what's happening. We need to ask questions. That is one of the main reasons why we need to hear the teachings again and again and again to find similar statements in suttas, to pull ourselves out of whatever is being promulgated and, and shouted in our, into our ears constantly. And we need to remember that suffering requires action. In order for you to suffer, you need to be applying a level of involvement in it. It's a doing. It's a doing. It's a process of doing. It's an involvement. It is an engagement. It is an engagement in trying to keep things to be a certain way. If, if you like a, a state of homeostasis, for example, to keep things the way they are, to keep things... Uh, a way that they are satisfactory, which is taking us back to suffering itself, because there is the, the, the cause of suffering is there, because there is a latching on to how I want things to be. Like Lord Buddha was saying, what is suffering? Suffering is also be, being in the same space as the undesirable or the painful, or being pulled away from what is pleasant. See, they're the same thing. They are dukkha generating. So in order for us to be in suffering mode, we need to be doing it. It needs to be getting energy from us. It's not just us on the being on the receiving end because 
even not doing a thing as far as changing our status. In this case, the status quo. Not doing a thing is also doing something because it is keeping us in this status quo. So because the person, after all, is, is applying their choice to stay in the center of, of that, into the nucleus of that suffering state. It might be choosing to continue to be doing the same habitual pattern, let's say. If the person happens to be an alcoholic and they know what steps happened before they reach for the bottle, or before they let that cuss word, that vulgar speech to come out of their lips, they know what happens, but they choose to do nothing about it and they go back to path of least resistance and they just keep doing the same thing again. That is also engaging in doing nothing, which is also doing something as far as that negative behavior is concerned because you didn't reject it. You didn't push it away. You didn't say, no, I'm going to put a stop to that. That requires also energy to pull away, but to stand there and to follow through with the instincts or the habit is also doing something which drags us back to the downward spiral of further suffering. That's what I mean by suffering requires action from us. We like to stay put in our suffering. And so long as that is the method of living, of the choosing of our lives and how we proceed in the holy life, the more we'll become more complacent not move, we're stuck. And not wanting to honestly look at our very refusal of making a change happen. For example, in not wanting to become heedful, in not wanting to become more diligent in your practice is another form of action. So when a student says, Bhante, I cannot sit for more than 15 minutes because my body aches or this or that. However, they have the ability to sit and play video games for four or five hours or talk over the phone, walking around the house or sitting talking over the phone or being online for several hours straight means that that person is choosing an action of inaction when it comes to meditation. To work on themselves. And they are happy keeping themselves in inaction, in the status quo, meaning perpetuation of suffering, because they don't want to change that homeostasis. Because there's a lack of urgency, Sangvega. So We need to put a new perspective on our understanding of suffering 
and our role in it in perpetuating it through our inactions. And this is where the Noble Eightfold Path is, is so priceless in giving you the tools as to how you go about. Well, right action has to be there, right involvement. I need to stop telling myself these wrong speeches or conversations of self-persuasive techniques that I convince myself that, no, 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 I need to leave the meditation cushion after 15 minutes because I'm too excited to sit there and, 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 and be on Facebook or Instagram for four and a half hours straight. I need to look at that conversation, the inner dialogue. So furthermore, bhikkhus, understand this now to be the noble truth of the origin and cause of suffering. That is, this thirst and craving for rebirth, to renewed experiences of what is enjoyed as delightful, longing for more experiences of pleasure here and there. That is, thirst for sensual pleasures, thirst for re-becoming, thirst for ending one's own existence. So he's talking about tanha. He's talking about, uh, um, well, you see the asavas here also, by the way, um, the craving, uh, the craving for re-becoming and the craving for non-becoming, uh, which basically can be uh, encaptured under the umbrella of ignorance, basically. Um, so, Another way, as I was saying about the middle path is to look at it in the context of the Eightfold Path. That is also seeing it as middle path because if someone were to ask you, well, what is the middle path? Like earlier I was mentioning about someone who says, well, less of alcohol, but alcohol is still there. Instead of being angry seven days a week, I'm only gonna be angry three times a week. Well, that's not the middle path. Like I joke around sometimes to demonstrate this point, and I say, um, you know, you cannot be a little bit pregnant. And people giggle and laugh because they understand that there's no such thing. You know, that's why, uh, you know, I don't believe in quasi dhamma. It's either dhamma or it's adhamma, period. And the Eightfold Path when practiced, when taught properly, when understood properly, is dhamma. It's not adhamma. So a person might be confused about what is the middle path, but they cannot be confused about the middle path because it's a lot more uh, set up in detail and step-by-step -step process. And it's, it is somewhat self-explanatory when you think of it, especially when you apply it, rather. So the Eightfold Path is the path that leads us away from suffering. The moment you set up yourself with right view, you already change your trajectory. You moved your trajectory, your compass away from suffering. But it doesn't end there. It's just right view. It's very important because everything else depends on it, but it needs more steps. It needs more steps that need to follow. Okay, I have the right view. What do I do next? I need to apply my intention. I need to build the Lego pieces upon this nice platform that I have. 
I need to find the base, the framework. I need to build that first. So here through the understanding of the first and second noble truths, we gain the insight of what is the first aspect of life that I was mentioning earlier, of what is the unwholesome side. And uh, a thing about uh, a few words about uh, truth, satya in Pali or satya in, in, in Sanskrit. Some people have said, uh, you know, I used to struggle with this uh, in the earlier days of, well, why is it, how can suffering be a truth? How, well, well, how can it be, I, I might be okay with, I might be understanding suffering to be a fact, which you can say, okay, a fact is truth, fine. You can stretch it and play with that. But as far as it's nobility, how can suffering be noble? Which is a legitimate argument, a question. It is not the suffering as such that makes it noble, a noble truth. It is the understanding of suffering by the person that makes it noble. Now, one also has to um, understand that suffering as such does not make it a noble truth. Now, I'm not doing play on words necessarily, but what I'm trying to say here is not everyone who's suffering can actually see the nobility of that truth, of suffering. The word that I'm trying to capture here is, is mindfulness and alertness and awareness of that mind who is the person who is experiencing, undergoing that process of suffering. Is there identification with the suffering? Usually there is. And the more identification there is, like I was mentioning about the grasping aggregates, the more you're saying, ah, this painful feeling is my feeling. Vedana, right? Which is the second aggregate. Who's feeling, who's, whose body is, is hurting my body? What is that? Nama Rupa, right? The Rupa, the body part. So Vedana, Rupa are linked in, glued. And what is the thing that triggered it? The memories. Ah, oh, it always happens to me this time of year, this time of month, this, you know. Well, why does it always happen to me? Because so-and-so doesn't get sick. So-and-so isn't getting sick. So what is happening here? Mental associations are taking place. Notions, memories, which are the sanya. That's the third kanda or aggregate. And then because of our, our tendency, leaning or propensity or disposition, if you will, of feeling like these things always like, or, or feeling down, or this is something that always occurs, etc. Sankaras, we're talking about the fourth one, which are usually karmically driven. That's why I like to call them generative causes. Our job is not to go looking for their sources. You won't be able to find them. It's impossible. But you can understand them. And they can cease through that understanding. 
And every time the sense awareness is picking up the pain of, let's say, the skin, the body, or the mental perception, manovinyana, which is now we're talking about the fifth aggregate, the person is still even more identifying. So this is where the aggregates can become grasping aggregates, because the same aggregates in the mind of an arahant are totally different. They're taking different, taken differently, seen differently because they simply are means to an end, to live the remainder of this physical life. The body will ache. Lord Buddha's body was aching tremendously. Every time he gave a Dhamma talk, he had to, he couldn't last for two, three hours or more as he normally would have given a talk in his later years. He, he wasn't able to. So he would take intermittent rest periods. He would tell Ananda or Venerable Sariputta, I'm going to now rest a little bit on his right side. And he would make a mental determination to wake up in 15 minutes. Or he would go into a deep jhana to deal with the pain. But he was not looking at it as my pain, my back pain. Even though he had the five aggregates. But he was not grasping onto them. So suffering exists as far as will exist, whether you're awakened or not. But there's a qualitative mental psychological aspect to the physical suffering that does not need to be there. And hence we have the Dhamma. The physical pain will be there. That is not our objective. Many people I still see come asking for meditation because they want to cut themselves loose while in the body from the body's pain. And that's not right view. There's no way you could do that. So long as you're going to live in this body, you are exposed to its, well, limitations. There are certain rules and laws we must abide by because we are inhabiting this thing called Nama Rupa. But you do not have to endure extra pain, the psychological, emotional, spiritual, if you will, added pain, which comes from wrong view. And that's why understanding the noble truth of suffering indicates the dislodging of that wrong view. Understanding the nobility of that truth, thanks to being present with awareness in the midst of that suffering and understanding what's what, what is taking place. That also is saying that the person is established in right view. These are not just terms we read about, we write a research paper on, or we like to listen to Dhamma talks. We, these are things that we need to take them in, chew on them mentally, take them with us wherever we go and process and understand, truly understand in relation to your life experiences. Because your life and the Dhamma cannot live separately. They cannot be separate. It's not, it's not, you're not living the holy life. They need to be one. 
your life and the Dhamma. So we need to understand how these teachings are interwoven into our experiences of pain, for example, or suffering or dissatisfaction or our view of the world. That's why I keep repeating the Dhamma is not in some sutta or in some Dhamma desan or Dhamma talk. The Dhamma is only to be seen in its colors, in its aliveness in your own life, if it is present there. Otherwise, there's ignorance claiming to itself to be Dhamma when it's not. The Dhamma is not your attainments as such over there, nicely framed, hanging on the wall, or your jhanas, or your understanding of Paticca Samuppada. Yes, intellectual. Yeah, it's right there. I say like a diploma you hang on the wall. No, it is the re uh, relationship of being awake as these phases are taking place, as you're going through these stages of pain and sorrow and suffering and lamentation and understanding where contact is happening, when feeling is generated, what is my approach to the feeling, whether it's pleasant, painful, or neutral. What is my interpretation of it? And whether I'm dragging that with me to the next moment, saying, claiming that it is my pain, my suffering. So, um, I covered a lot, <laughs> but as you know, we, we've only like touched the surface of the sutta, uh, but uh, I will pause here because it's been almost two hours now, uh, an hour 40 some minutes, um, but I will pause here for questions and we'll continue uh, next week instead of in two weeks because as long as our memory is fresh uh, with, with the contents of this sutta. So I think, yeah, we'll do that uh, instead of our regular two-hour sitting meditation retreat. So we'll continue where uh, uh, we're stopping here, and which is uh, what we're about to start on the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. So we're right there on the second cusp of, of, of getting into the second aspect of the Four Noble Truths, uh, which is Niroda. But uh, I will stop here and ask for any questions, comments, and um, hopefully it, it, what I've shared with you today is, has helped you to uh, clarify certain things or brought up some other things that allows you to see the Dhamma in a new light, in a different way, uh, different nuances, and resulting in helping you progress much better and faster uh, with a lot more clarity. So I'll take some water now. Please unmute yourself uh, if you're going to ask questions. Thank you.
Thanks very much for the talk, Bhante. Um, while we are at Vedana, um, which is uh, commonly translated as feelings, um, I'm reminded that there are altogether three kinds of feelings which the Buddha has mentioned, um, namely um, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and perhaps the sneakiest one is the neutral feelings. Um, for the first two, the pleasant feeling, um, sukha and dukkha, are very, very obvious. So um, we know a pleasant feeling, and we know that we are overindulging in pleasant feelings or unpleasant feelings. And when we are adverse to unpleasant feelings, they are very, very obvious. I mean, we can never uh, miss it. Um, what I would like to mention is that um, when we are dealing with neutral feelings, um, feelings of boredom, feeling of um, I don't know, restlessness, this is perhaps um, a very important aspect of the training, isn't it? Because, um, and I can recall that the Buddha has mentioned many times that um, when a neutral feeling, when a neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, when a neutral feeling is not decent as such, it, um, it becomes unpleasant. And while it's being understood as neutral, then it's just a neutral feeling. And could you please um, elaborate on that? I've, yes, uh, this is a very uh, subtle uh, question and uh, an important one um, because it doesn't usually come up. Uh, as you pointed out, uh, the two are very loud and unmistakable in their personality, if you will. Uh, the two I'm referring to are, are, are obviously the painful feeling and the pleasurable or pleasant feeling. I've noticed, I've seen, I've heard, I've witnessed some teachers mention how the neutral feeling is referring to some uh, jhanic experience a sensation, a feeling, as a result of jhanas, higher states of, of mind. And uh, let's say upekka sometimes is seen by some teachers, some individuals as the neither pleasant nor unpleasant or non-painful. But at the same time, upekka is also seen as a, a very uh, pleasant feeling because it does have the element of, uh, of comfort, which gives us a sense of subtle happiness. So it's not completely neutral. On another level, it can be seen, the neutral feeling can be seen as a feeling that is being missed out on. A feeling that is being neglected to be looked at 
properly. Basically, the person is not heedful towards that feeling. And sometimes some uh, translators have used the term indifferent. Instead of using the word neutral, they say indifferent to. Let's say how if you're wearing clothing uh, and, and the clothing is touching, let's say your knees from the inside, you know, your knees are touching. If you're wearing pants or a skirt or something, a fabric, your knees or any other area like the elbow or the back of your hand might be touching something or anywhere for that matter. Uh, but until I mentioned that location, it was still left unbeknownst to you as far as what is it? So you added a texture of mindfulness upon it. Now, still that does not necessarily mean that it is uh, painful or pleasant. But I think about a couple of months ago, uh, someone asked, I think it might've been you, Patissa, who asked about health. And what is health? The absence of sickness oftentimes is seen as health. The absence of being ill or sick or not being in pain can be seen as health. Because it's very hard otherwise to say what is health. Majority of the time we are, so long as we're living mindlessly, we're not having heedfulness with us, diligent in our practice of sati and sampajanya, we are living in ignorance. We are living in ignorance. Now, based off of that, so that to me, the way I see it, the way I understand this, of course, I'm not saying this is how it is and this is how everyone should see it, of course, but this is how I see how the neutral feeling can easily be triggered and move into the area of painful feeling. Let's say if you were walking without Sampajanya, clear comprehension. And last time uh, I was mentioning in the Dhamma talk how it is essential for us to know, to clearly comprehend where we are in time and space. Let's say if I'm walking without mindfulness, that means I don't have Sampajanya, period. But if I am walking with Sampajanya, clearly comprehending where my hands are, where my elbows are, where my knees are pointed at, where my feet are pointed at, how my weight is being distributed. If I'm walking, for example, on wet ground or oily ground, suddenly, the ground is slippery, suddenly I will have to bring in uh, big doses of sampajanya and mindfulness so that I can maintain a balance. Now, what I did was I pulled myself out of the very neutral feeling. Because had I walked carelessly uh, with neutral feeling or neutral sensation, you can, sometimes I use it interchangeably, sensation or feeling. What will happen is 
because there is no clear comprehension and i let's say when you know you get out of bed and you're still groggy drowsy and you don't have any shoes on no slippers and you're walking and by accident you hit your you stub your toe at the edge of the sofa it's a graphic image because it happened to my brother years ago and he dislocated his toe his big toe and it happened to me a few years ago in italy where i slammed or jammed my small pinky toe basically of my foot and it got bruised up and to this day it hurts but <laughs> it started as a neutral feeling i mean i was feeling the ground but i was not with that moment of awareness with that sensation with that experience until i banged i stubbed my toe guess what it quickly changed into very painful it didn't go gradually it was very fast and now the neutral feeling became very unpleasant very painful in a way i resemble these three states of feeling to the three kilesas how so if you remember kilesas are loba dosa moha loba is greed lust dosa is hatred anger and moha is ignorance delusion so if you look at the three kilesas like this you can if you can stretch the imagination and bring it into kinesthetically and feel it in your body as to what loba might feel like you can see that there can be a correlation between the pain uh, pleasant feeling or enjoyable pleasurable feeling and what what's the correlation with kilesha loba the greed the lust ah i like this very delicious ice cream painful or pleasant pleasant so you can see it there in that form now as it relates to the dosa part or the hatred part of kilesha's the defilements you can see it as the painful feeling because hatred anger rarely leaves the person with feeling good even though we a lot we sometimes think that that's the same thing actually when you do get angry when you do yell or you do slam something a slam a door or release it basically that release is the thing which is releasing the mind liberating the mind or the physical uh the tension is being relieved it's like in in the case of sex lay people so when there is a release there all of a sudden the person goes ah what happened there was the release of that but while that tension was building up while you were feeling the poisonous qualities of hatred and anger meaning dosa was that painful or was that pleasurable it was absolutely painful and similarly when you go to the moha part of the kileshas or the poisons uh defilements you look at it as the mother of the other two 
because when the mind is defiled, when, uh, when the mind in this case is ignorant, it's going to go in one of two paths, down one of two paths, alleys, either in the painful or in the hatred in this case, giving this example of the kileshas, anger, or the pleasure. So if I were to extend this uh, question and what I'm trying to describe or explain and address your question into the context of what I covered earlier in the Dhammachakapavattana, specifically in reference to the two extremes, you see where I'm going. One is about one extreme, self-mortification, and the other was the uh, path that Lord Buddha Siddhartha Gautama had practiced for 29 years, meaning hedonistic lifestyle, where none of his desires, carnal uh, sense pleasures were ever deprived of anything. He catered, it was all catered to. That is pleasure. The other one is painful. What was the other thing that it stems from? Moha, the delusion. Similarly, I approach looking at the three feelings in this context, uh, the way Lord Buddha was approaching the two extremes. Now, where does the middle path fall in? If you were following that line of thought. The moment there is sati, now you pull yourself completely out of the three because there's clear comprehension. Now you won't be slipping because you know where your foot are placed, your feet are placed. You're able to balance much better. You'll be able to know where can I lean in case one foot slips? Can I lean into the wall? Am I too far from the wall? Maybe if I push down with my foot flat instead of just using my heel on a very slippery, oily surface. Suddenly, you're applying sati, which is what? Part of the Eightfold Path, samasati. So in the presence of the Eightfold Path, you're already practicing the Middle Path. In the practice of the Middle Path, you're already practicing the Eightfold Path in the presence of right mindfulness. So if you start with any of these, by the way, any of the rungs, any of the branches of the Noble Eightfold Path, you don't have to just always start with right view. No, sometimes it's hard to trace. For example, I just used the example of mindfulness in that scene of you walking on a slippery surface, oily surface. We just talked about sati. Guess what? Sati is part of the Eightfold Path. But given the presence of sati, you bring in all the other seven. So now you have the completeness of Eightfold Path. So you're practicing right view. So in this way, you can transcend the three-natured feelings, meaning pleasure, pain, and neutral. 
So you don't have to be stuck on any of those three where you can transcend and you can even get to the point where you don't make new kamma, as they say about the arahants. Sometimes they're translated as kiriya citta, where the action is it, it ends there. There's no building of new sankharas or, you know, new kamma. Because the person is seeing what is taking place. They are also seeing the natural results that sometimes can happen, obviously, because we have a body. But they will be able to break down the tiny little portions of time, despite how small, given the presence of Sama uh, Sati. In, in fact, this is called uh, Maha Sati at this point, where every millisecond is being observed so long as the mind has reached a certain depth. And because of the presence of Mahasati, there's also the growth of Mahapanya. How is this so far, by the way? Do you feel like I'm answering your question? Yes, definitely. Thank you very much, Bhante. Um, which also uh, reminds me, uh, which makes me reflect on the um, the first few verses of the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta that you have recited to us, that, uh, which Mahasati probably gives rise to uh, direct vision, knowledge. Um, what else do we have? Um, <laughs> peace, tranquility, Nibbana, extinguishment. <laughs> yes. yes that's how I understand that's a good understanding <laughs> because you start seeing what I was referring to earlier that it needs the Dhamma has to be related with your particular life and but it has to be the gates have to be open from your side meaning the trust, the, um, the continued practice, the heedfulness, not heedlessness. The diligence has to be there on your part to constantly be open and not isolate, isolate yourself in these metal walls, this metal room of ignorance, which most of us get to and sometimes get stuck in given our practice and whatever experiences we have but we limit ourselves but life is constantly happening around us and that's where sati sati is engaging is like moving your hand out of those metal or iron walls away and reaching back softly to life and and being present being aware okay i'm still here i'm moving this body i'm experiencing things i'm sitting here because every single moment of sati is precious every single mo moment is meaningful we can enter into nibbana at any of these moments that's how available it is 
but we cannot do so without sati. Sati that is really refined and refined and refined and being refined by the person constantly. So it's not like a stage that we reach and we're good after that so we don't practice sati. No, there's no such thing. Unfortunately, there is uh, that misconception out there, even within Theravada circles, where we, you know, hang our robes in a sense of, of practice of the holy life and say, okay, I'm okay now, I don't have to. No. So long as you haven't atta attained that level of Arahantship, you, you can't say that. In fact, once you reach there, chances are that Mahasati will be with you throughout. And because you have Mahasati, you're absolutely right. There will be Panya, Mahapanya at that. So every moment is a moment of insight. Imagine that. So we're never like hanging our, you know, okay, we're done, I'm back, now I can kick my shoes off, I'm, I'm resting now, the holy life has been completed. Unless the person has become an arahant, there's no such thing. So sati has to be constantly engaged. But it is not like work work, it's, 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 it, it, it's fun work, <laughs> it's enjoyable. And, but that is why I said, the gates have to be open. That curiosity has to be wide, wide, wide open from our end. And this is when we are really enjoying Dhamma, not for the sake of attaining this state, attaining this jhana. Sadly, there are places and uh, even some monasteries I know of that have become, <laughs> that used to be uh, factories for jhanas. I would call them, but now they've turned into factories of attainments. Students ask me, oh, uh, Bhante, I'm going to go to this uh, monastery so that I can practice, uh, so I can get to this jhana or this attainment. That's missing the whole boat completely. The real retreat is happening with you the moment you are present in your body, inhabiting your body with awareness. And taking the, in this case, the Dhamma Chakka Pavattana, taking this thing called middle path into your own, the very fabric of your own DNA, into your own life and seeing its relatedness to it. And if there isn't that you see, probe it, probe it some more, see it, look for it, because it's there. The moment you open up, the moment you assume the position of a total, absolute beginner, which requires humility. And every time we approach Dhamma, we need to approach it with that uh, attitude. Every time we sit and meditate, we need to approach it with that attitude of humility. And never like, okay, where did we leave off yesterday? On the clipboard? I was like, oh, yes, yes, that's the, okay, that's where we're going to continue. No. So, um, a great question. Thank you for bringing it up. Any other thoughts, questions, comments?
hit the wrong button. <laughs> Dante, thank you. Uh, you something occurred in my mind that you were talking about sati and thinking about us thinking about or being aware of where our hand position is or where our foot position is when we're on, on a slippery slope. But my understanding of sati was more about uh, remembering anatta and anicca and not self that when we have thoughts occur to us and we have vedana, we have feelings about the sensations um, that it's all not that not self that that we're just a body and that those things aren't really real we're trying to eliminate the craving and the clinging so I'm trying to get that in my mind to match with what you're saying that we're remembering our body positions and things. It's it's not it's not including the part that I had included Sadie with as remembering Anicca and Anatta. What did you just use to communicate your thoughts and, and express your questions with to me? Uh, my perception, my memory, um, something my voice, my Hmm. Hands. <laughs> uh, uh. You use your body. Yes. That's the baseline. That's that's where we start from. Now, what I've noticed noticed from my own practice, uh, my own life, and understanding, and and also how there are these loopholes and and these gaps, these dark spots, blind spots, if you will that we get stuck in, I think inevitably at one point or another, is that we negate, we ignore the body at one point. Of course, some of us more than others, especially if we come from, I've said in the past, like uh, if we're very cognitively oriented, we'd like to work with abstractions, concepts, ideas. Uh, we will look at Anicca as this, you know, like Plato would say, form with the capital F, um, these things out there. And then we start to put these layers, we flesh it out, we, we try to make sense of, make it more tangible. Again, this has a lot to do, I've noticed, with the person's, um, like in education, there's the learning styles, um, the person's approach in deciphering this thing, this, this, this phenomenon called life, to understand one's own place in it, to make sense of it. So there will be the abstract or conceptual uh, tendency to understand versus, well, at the cost of forgetting what it is that I 100% must rely on in order for me to be able to engage in that analysis, scrutinizing, et cetera, meaning understanding what is anatta, what is anicca, what is, Dukkha. And this is the stumbling block. This is the, the trap that many of us get caught in, sometimes for decades, sometimes for a whole lifetime. Um, and when the moment comes, let's say I might write an entire uh, series of lectures, I might have several, you know, uh, diplomas and PhDs in anal analyzing what these three characteristics of existence uh, as per Buddhism are okay. But when I get that headache, 
or when I get that toothache, everything goes out the window. I'm still a jerk at the end of the day. I might be talking to you about the Brahma Viharas day and night. I wrote, I actually taught it, let's say. But when it comes to me feeling that pinch, I'm gonna scream out loud, ouch, deafeningly, you know, with that cry out there without any sati. Now, of course, I'm not saying that we don't do that because ultimately we're also applying manovinyana. We're practicing the aspect of mental perception, which is one of the six perceptions, applying the mind to understand concepts, which if you take it into the satipatthana formula, you see that it is the last, the dhammanupassana, where you're approaching and understanding these very, very subtle phenomena, bases of life, of existence. But how did we start on the Satipatthana to begin with? The first was Kayanupassana, the body contemplation. Ah, I see. So the person has to, we cannot overshoot, we cannot neglect, we cannot avoid or not pay attention to the Kayanupassana portion, meaning the body awareness. In order for us to stand, we need the feet, our feet, uh, and the legs and the knees, which I think are uh, some of the most neglected parts of the human body, for example. So, and et cetera, et cetera, until we get to the cerebral, the cerebral part of the body. Um, so, the body has to be included and uh, in, in all aspects of, of awareness. Otherwise it's, or analysis rather, otherwise it is a stumbling block. It is a temptation that sometimes I've seen a lot of people, and that's where people get into ego trips uh, as even bhikkhus uh, or lay teachers. And they will talk about anatta for ages and, and, and never really understand what it means. Cognitively, they do, they think. But you might analyze a person, how, how, how the person can be swimming, write a PhD dissertation on it, but you never know how to swim yourself. Well, where does that leave the person with all that knowledge? Means nothing. So I'm not throwing the baby with the bathwater here. However, in order for us to really understand the relationship of, let's say, the impermanency of life, I need to look at, for example, how the breath starts, how it's enduring and staying with it, staying with it, staying with it until poof, it's gone. And there's another inhale coming in and it disappears. And now I'm watching the exhalation take place. Similarly, with uh, concepts, with thoughts, with sanya, every time you have, let's say, a memory, instead of getting into the analysis mode of what anicca is, make it more relatable, make it more uh, understandable, digestible, palatable to you and to your own experience, meaning bringing it from cognitive land into something that you can observe. And this is where sati is extremely important. 
you sit there and you watch as the memory showed up because you did not let it slip. Just like you were not allowing the breath slip, you're now cognizant. Let's say if it's a recurring memory, if it's a recurring thought, if you have been present at any of the past intervals where this situation occurred, you will identify as to what type of a association will come up next. Perhaps it's a certain type of feeling. Let's say if you recall how that ice cream felt when your dad got it for you, let's say at the age of 10, somewhere in, I don't know, Australia, how it felt in the body and what you saw next or what colors you saw and where already you know the storyline. Now, now you feel that same memory come or you intentionally bring it up, the memory, but you pull away and you're watching what's happening. You're watching as it occurred, as it began, as it arose. And now you see how it disappears, but then you are not absent to what's about to happen next. You're watching to see the various sensations take place in the body or the other thoughts that are about to happen. And the other associate, maybe even feelings, maybe hate or anger or sorrow, sadness. Now, we don't stop there. You're pulling back and you're seeing the whole process take place in front of your eyes, mentally, you know, metaphorically speaking, your eyes. And here is where you see Anicca, because you saw, just like in the case of the breath, you saw how it didn't stop at the arising. It had the other segments added. And it's not even segmented, it's actually a flow. Similarly with memories. And as you're looking at this, you're observing Anicca constantly. Meanwhile, you're, as you're remembering all these things, your body's sending signals to you constantly. You're observing that. And you're seeing how nothing is stationary. And as you are continuing this process of awareness of as it's going into Mahasati, you get to the point where you will be able to see that there is no substantial Greg or Gregness to this. It's just different things happening. Given the propensity or the Sankara principles playing in the background, meaning karmic inclinations, generative causes or formations that have already begun. The momentum is there. You're not here to stop the Sankaras. You cannot in that fashion by putting a full stop that no, through understanding, they will dissipate and vanish. But not when we are simply analyzing. Analyzing is only tiny, 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 tiny little piece of the jigsaw puzzle. What is crucial is using that analysis that was gained and bringing into the life stream of what is taking place right now in your life, in that moment, particular instant. Because you are so much vested in understanding what is taking place. That is where Dhamma takes place. That is where we see Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta are not things to be constantly, you know, parroted here and there talk about like that. That's not anicca. That's not dukkha. That's definitely not anatta. 
it is so genuinely precious and it's so juicy and it's so you. It's so you, it's so like, you see it, you, it's your life. But I don't want to go into like talking almost like using maybe a mystical language here, no. But it's happening. And that's why I brought it back down to the breath, something that we call the uh, Kaya, um, Kaya Sankara, which is the body Sankara, which is uh, the manifested version of Sankaras, meaning in the body. And usually we refer to the breath for that. So that's one of the reasons why everything is captured within the breath. Can you see the three characteristics of existence within a single breath? And in fact, there were a group of bhikkhus who were arguing amongst themselves. And then finally, they go to the Lord Buddha and they say, this is what we've been talking about. And, and Lord Buddha, I think it was in case of Maranupasana, the contemplation of death. And then, so the person says, well, I, I, I think about it during the time of eating a, a one meal during the duration of my eating the alms food that time, like lunch. The other one brings it down slowly, slowly to one morsel of food. Another person says, one inhalation, one exhalation. And then finally it gets to the monk who says, not even that, I'm contemplating death, or in this case, in this example, the three characteristics of existence, in one single exhale or in single inhale, because it's all there. And the Buddha gives them, you know, he commends them for all of their approach because at least they are contemplating this. But then he puts an extra emphasis on the last bhikkhu because he's not missing a single inhale or a single exhale because they're all encapsulated. They are there nicely bundled we need to unravel them. And the unraveling agent is sati. As we're unraveling that gift within the single moment of awareness of a thought, seeing its arising duration and its disappearance, that's where sati moves and gives way to panya to take place. And so, because that's where you're studying an analysis of all these principles, can really bear fruit, then it becomes real and visceral, real, and becomes your truth. And no one can persuade you otherwise. Because now it becomes Dhamma, it's experiential, it is lived, akaliko, timeless. And you become the perfect evidence of that, the witness to that. That's why enlightenment or Nibbana is very, very personal to the person, to the individual. That's why no one gives it to you. No one can take it away from you. No teacher will give you Nibbana. And the validation to that comes from your heart itself. Because you know, you see Anicca Dukkanatta right there in front of you. How is this working? Much more complete than the thought that I had beforehand. Uh, it's interesting when you were talking about the breath just then and a Nietzsche, when we're 
meditating on the breath, normally my thoughts again had been to eliminate all the thoughts and if they arise to make them go away, to relax them. Um, but it sounds like really I should be at least sometimes remembering to contemplate the anicca and the anatta, the, the arising and the passing, and to make that the awareness that um, of anicca and anatta, actually, that's what I'm thinking about when I'm breathing, every breath that comes in and as it goes away, rather than trying not to have any thoughts at all. Mm -hmm. I, I'm being mindful of those things. Mm -hmm. um... If you recall, I mentioned about the Satipatthana Sutta, and I started with the Dhammanupassana, which is the last limb, last yeah. limb of it, starting with the, the, the Kaya Anupassana, which is the body. We have a similar uh, four or a tetrad uh, sections of, of, of the breath meditation in the uh, Anapanasati Sutta. And I highly recommend uh, you go through these tetrads. So basically, they're uh, 16 steps. And what you're describing as, uh, you know, I need to contemplate anicca, for example, using your words. In fact, the fourth tetrad deals with that. Exactly. Yeah. But, but the person has to start with the first tetrad, which is what? Which you are starting with simply identifying that there is a breath taking place consistently. Now, this is where the catch is. Most of us cannot hold awareness of the breath as it's taking place. This is where some teachers will have the student count to 10. 10 breaths mm -hmm. and being consistent with it. Not like two breaths, you're conscious, you're aware, and then third, fourth, fifth, oops, where was I? Oh, I have to start with six. What was that? Was that four or five? Oh, okay, let me start with six. No, no, no. You again start from one. Until the heedfulness gets so strong, diligence gets so strong that you will not let go of any of these breaths being or gone unnoticed. You hold on to the awareness for dear life, as it were. Now, as you're doing this, this is again with the first tetrad, you start to develop the awareness of, hmm, that was a short breath. That was a long breath. Ah, so you start to distinguish between the short and the long. The next portion comes where you start to notice the beginning part of the breath, the middle, and the end. This is where it's called the kaya of the breath, meaning the body of the breath. Now, this, does, this doesn't mean that you're following the breath in the body, no. So usually, I, I have to mention this also, when we feel the breath, it is around the nostrils. So basically, it's around the upper lip and maybe the wall separating the, the nostrils or just the entry point, but nowhere else, not following it inside as we're breathing it in, not following outside as it goes out in the exhalation. So you're just localized here. So you're going to feel different sensations, maybe warmth, maybe heat, uh, maybe maybe coolness, etc. So the person now in the third stage, they're seeing the breath 
moving, having a beginning, a middle, and an end. Same with the exhalation. And then the next stage is where the person calms and relaxes, excuse me, relaxes the breath. We call it the Kaya Sankara. Mentally, the person, Pasambaya, it's called, relaxing. Next, we get to the uh, bringing in the joy element. The joy element. This is where the person has already been going into, let's say, the first and second jhanas. Uh, so there's joy, obviously, because you're talking about the first jhana. And then there's the, so you become cognizant. You are aware of the breath. Every time you're breathing in and out, you're contemplating joy, piti. Then you're contemplating, second would be contemplating happiness or sukha in this case. And then uh, it goes on like this, and then you will relax um, even we get to the chitta part where you are easing, settling and becoming sensitive to the mind. Chittanupassana, if you recall from the Satipatthana, the third is Chittanupassana, which is contemplation of the mind states, the mind itself, the mental flavor. So you become cognizant of that. And now we're in the third tetrad. So you are looking at the settling in and becoming sensitive. And the second stage of that third tetrad would be looking at delighting the mind, it's called. Delighting in. So now we're going more and more towards the, the fourth jhana. So there's this equanimity developing, equanimity developing. And eventually you get to uh, uh, calming even the chitta-anupassana, because even that is seen as a hindrance, ultimately speaking, and when you, came, you come to the awareness of the anicca. Now, in the fourth tetrad is where you get to focus and contemplate anicca, impermanence. How? Because of all that you went through. Because the breath is always your litmus test. You can always lean back and just look at the breath. That is your reference point. It's like when you're driving on the road, you don't know where you're going, but you were aware of it five minutes ago because you were following the GPS. But you kind of feel lost at that moment. Oh, all you have to do is look down at the GPS and just to see whether your arrow and the, the road, everything still is on track on the screen. Oh yes, I'm on track. Okay, that would become like the breath. You checking in with the breath and seeing Ah, there is that beginning, middle, and end. Can I just uh, ask a question here? We're talking about, as we go through these different tetrads and stages, contemplating the breath and contemplating joy, etc. Should we really be experiencing the joy rather than thinking about it? Because I can think about joy but not experience it. And my understanding of the jhanas is that I really need the joy to come up and then the joy to settle down and the um and to move on to more calmness so uh, where i hear contemplating it it leads me more to thinking and thinking about joy but that's not really what it means is it yes you're right uh and then notice the contemplation part um comes in uh, basically it's a trigger point contemplating impermanence you're not contemplating let's say pity 
you're bringing PT up, you're, you're, you're generating that feeling, you're reminding yourself. And if you've experienced it before, sometimes uh, what, and you've done it quite often, all you have to do is trigger it, instigate it. And by just a memory, may joy arise in my heart, boom, PT's there. And that's the reference to that in within its own respective tetrad. But in the last one, you need to invite the notion of impermanence. You need to invite that set of spectacles, basically, to look at what is happening. So there is an element of curiosity. Of course, you can play with it. Uh, I've seen a lot of times people use the word contemplate, that verb, which I have a difficulty swallowing it when it, we're talking about these lofty states, of course. But you can use experimenting or, or sensing or experiencing is another one I've seen being used, which I can, it's much more palatable for me. Experiencing anicca, for example, that's for the fourth, the last stage of the uh, anapanasati, where you now are in a very uh, practical way, application-wise, you are looking at all these principles taking shape. Why? Because you're still following through with what is happening with the body. While at this, so they're basically like two layers. If you've ever worked with graphic design or something, there's different layers. So one layer will add a different nuance to whatever's in the background. It's like animation. So you look at it from the top. So you're seeing the whole thing from many, many, but when you look inside, you're seeing the layer of anicca here. So the mind has now reached a point where it can do this subtle surgery of understanding. And after the anicca, what you bring in is experiencing viraga, which is dispassion, dispassion towards what is being experienced. Sometimes people call it uh, fading away. I don't like that term. Uh, viraga is not fading away. It's it's uh, lack of lust or dispassion, no longer passion being pulled in this direction and that. And when there is that uh, level of the tetrad being understood and experienced, then comes the cessation, niroda. So, niroda uh, nupassi, it is the cessation you start to experience because there's viraga, there can be cessation because you're not being pulled left and right. And if you remember from the Pachalayana Sutta, uh, Pachalayamana Sutta from uh, Venerable Mahamogalana, where Lord Buddha said, nothing is fit to be clung to. Um, at that point, Lord Buddha explained to him that all these steps, when the bhikkhu, when the meditator is no longer being pulled left and right because they start seeing that nothing is fit to be clung to, then whatever nature the feelings have, whether it's neutral, like we said, or uh, painful or pleasurable, they're not pulled into the story. They see it for what it is but they don't engage in it, meaning they don't get agitated. When the person is no longer agitated, it means they have this passion. Now, when they have this passion, what happens is there is niroda, cessation. Ending of that pulling and this and that, which is suffering, right? So the suffering ends, so there is cessation of that. 
And as a result of experiencing uh, viraga and uh, the cessation, there is the experiencing of patinisagyanupassi, which is the, the, the dropping, the letting go. If you no longer are being pulled in this and that, you just see it for what it is. It's like those pieces of Lego. You no longer see it as the vicious lion because you just took it apart. It's just a gray piece of plastic. It's just there. How can I cling to that? How can I hold on to that? And if you remember that image of the sandbags being carried in the flood, mm -hmm. taking up to only to give up uh, Adana Patinisagga minus the Upadana, which is the grasping, that is what we're doing then. So every experience is that every experience that happens, every breath, for example, that is taking place, you're seeing anicca, you're seeing viraga, you're seeing cessation, and now you're seeing patinisaga, which is picking up only to give up. And the more we do this, the more we do this, the more we do this on a continuous basis, thanks to your sati, it becomes so real, the Dhamma becomes alive and you will taste what Lord Buddha has been talking about. So uh, I hope that helps. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, try these, these uh, I mean, I usually teach um, the metta practice, but uh, we cannot undermine the breath practice at all, because after all, all the Tathagatas attain their uh, Nibbana uh, thanks to the Anapana uh, practice. And um, uh, but I usually use the metta practice because it really gets things going rather quickly, uh, especially in this time period where there is a, a major lack in uh, loving kindness in the world. First, one towards oneself and uh, to the world around them. So that is the reason why, one of the major reasons why I teach the metta up until the meditator gets to certain levels, that's when I might go ahead, depending on how they progress, to change it to breath or something else. Um, so just as a side note there. Um, we almost at almost our three hours. Uh, so I hope you uh, enjoy. Let me ask again if there's any other questions before we close. Okay, so uh, next week we'll continue from where we left off and it gets very interesting, uh, even more. Uh, so, uh, but for now, let us share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May you be well. May the triple gem protect you and your loved ones. And please be diligent in your practice. On and off the cushion. With clear comprehension, knowing where your feet are and your ankles, 
Bend your knees, elbows. <laughs> so I'll see you next week.